This morning we uh, come to Genesis chapter 37, the uh, final main section of the book of Genesis, this uh, section uh, in which we find the narrative concerning Joseph and the patriarchs. Now we've had some glimpses into the family of Jacob, Jacob and his sons. Earlier on in the book of Genesis, there were some, there were some dark things that we saw there. We saw the mess engendered by Jacob's polygamy. We saw the deceptive and murderous activity of Simeon and Levi at Shechem. We saw Reuben sleeping with his father's concubine in Genesis 35. So there have been some there have been some hints that all is not well within this family, and it should come as no surprise to us that the trend continues here. So let's look to the text, Genesis chapter 37, Genesis chapter 37. Moses writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this, now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him. They could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they heeded him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon And eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said, I will go. Then he said to him, Go now, and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. A man found him. And behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. 
When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw it into the pit to took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the tunic in the blood, and they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, captain of the bodyguard. And so, as we look here to Genesis 37 this morning, first what we want to do is kind of walk through the text and make some observations and, and see what's going on here. And then, after we've done that, we want to, to look next at the progression and patterns of sins that we, that we see going on here. There's a lot of sins going on here, and these sins are related to one another. And after we've done that, we want to look and see how our Lord Jesus Christ is prefigured in the life of Joseph and the events and things that happen to Joseph. So we want to walk through the text, make some observations. Then we want to see that the pattern and progression of sins. And then finally, see how Joseph and these events point ahead to Christ. And so we begin here with Jacob and his sons living in the land of Canaan, like Abraham and Isaac before them. And these men, obviously, are shepherds. Joseph is a young man now, 17 years old. His older brothers are 
within the range of six years older than him or, or so. If we think about the, the time frame in which these, these brothers were born, Joseph is uh, the, the last of the 11. Obviously, Benjamin is younger than him, but the older brothers are spread out within the range of, of six years or so older than him. And particularly here in verse 2, we see that he's out pasturing the flock with the sons of Bilhah. Those are Dan and Naphtali and the sons of Zilpah, who are Gad and Asher. And we don't know what went down, but there was something bad that happened, right? Because Joseph brings back a bad report about them to their father. Now, we can't say with certainty whether Joseph is simply being a tattler, kind of, telling on his older brothers, or whether maybe there was something actually very seriously wrong that was going on here that actually needed to be reported back to Jacob. But either way, we get the impression that trouble is on the table here between Joseph and his brothers. Even as early as verse 2, we can say that the storm clouds are already beginning to gather. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see this favoritism with which Jacob treats Joseph. We're told that Jacob loved Joseph more than his other sons, and then he makes that favoritism clear by the gift of a garment. Now, most of our English translations follow the the Greek Septuagint in translating this as a a robe of many colors, as the ESV does, or as a very colored tunic, as the New American Standard does, or something to that effect. Joseph and his coat of many colors. Now, I hope I'm not bursting any bubbles, but the literal Hebrew simply has the the sense of a a floor-length robe and long sleeve. That's, that seems to be the, the sense of the original. Now, it might have had many colors, as the Septuagint indicated, but the, uh, the original text is not that specific. But nevertheless, the effect of the gift is clear. It's a clear signal to the other brothers that Joseph is the favorite and that their father loves him more than all the rest of them. They saw this quite clearly, and therefore we're told that they hated their brother. They could not speak to him peacefully. To put it in our terms, they hate his guts. They can't stand him. And so in loving Joseph more and being open and clear that he loved Joseph more, Jacob now has created a problem. He's kind of created the proverbial monster, right? He has unwittingly now set something into motion that would bring hardship and suffering both to Joseph and to himself. And He stirred up the sinful passions of his other sons. But we're getting ahead of ourselves in saying all of that. At the end of verse 4, things are only getting started, because then in verse 5 and following come the dreams. Now, it's been been pointed out that in the Genesis narrative concerning Joseph, when, when the dreams show up, they show up in pairs, right? Here, Joseph has two dreams, the, the dream of the sheaves, the dream of the stars. Later on, when Joseph is in prison, there are two dreams there, one from the butler, one from the baker. When Pharaoh has dreams, he has two dreams as well. He has one in which the, the seven fat cows get eaten up by the seven skinny and gaunt cows, and one in which the seven plump ears of grain get swallowed up by seven thin and scorched ears of grain. These, these dreams come in pairs. And so Joseph has these dreams, and he reports them to his brothers. Now, what was going on in the mind of Joseph in doing this? It's hard to say. Some have thought that he's guilty of pride and boasting in reporting these dreams to his brothers and that he's kind of being the, the arrogant little brother. Hey, I had this dream. Look what happens to me. All you guys bow down to me. 
some have thought that this is not necessarily the case and that maybe Joseph is not really even thinking about the, uh, the significance of the dream and, and what, what these dreams signified so much as, hey, I just, I just had this dream, let me, let me tell you about it. And so it's, it's a little bit, little bit hard to say, but on the one hand, uh, it's been pointed out that Joseph is already on the outs with his brothers, and so why would he, why would he tell these dreams to kind of exacerbate the problem if he had this dream and he understands, hey, this is going to make me look better than you. It's difficult to say, for sure. But obviously we've got this first dream in which Joseph's sheaf of grain stands upright and his brothers bow down. And whether Joseph understood or not the significance of the dream, the brothers did, right? You can, you can see that there in their words in verse 8. They say, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? And so, whether or not Joseph got it, they certainly did. And they hated him even more on account of this dream. And then there's the second dream. The sun, the moon, and the eleven stars are bowing down to him. And we might think that maybe if Joseph didn't understand the first dream, that by now he might be starting to understand that these dreams are indicating his elevation and therefore He might think twice about sharing with them this second dream, but nevertheless, he went ahead and shared it with them and with his father. And he gets a rebuke from Jacob in this. And Jacob says, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? But you'll notice there in the text that even though he rebuked Jacob and spoke to him as he did, nevertheless, we find in verse 11 that he didn't completely dismiss this as ridiculous. He was said that he kept the saying in mind. He held on to this in his memory. He's like, hmm, there's something odd going on here. I'll have to think about this. We'll see, we'll see what happens. He kept the saying in his memory. But his brothers, on the other hand, were told of them that they become jealous of him. They'd hated him already. Now they're jealous of his potential superiority should these dreams be fulfilled. Now, it's worth noticing just in passing that the imagery of this dream actually shows up again in Scripture. It shows up in in Revelation 12, 1 and 2. John says there that he saw a great sign in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of of 12 stars. John says that the woman was pregnant and was about to give birth. And this this imagery there of this woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and the crown of 12 stars harkens back here to Genesis 37, 9. And so taking it all together, the sun and the moon represent Jacob and his wife. The 12 stars, which John saw, represent the the 12 sons of Israel. And so this this vision that, that John has there of that woman in Revelation 12 points back here to Genesis 37.9, and we should understand then in Revelation 12 that what John sees is, is Israel or, or the people of God. And so when we, when we read the Scripture, we need to keep other parts of Scripture in mind so as to inform our understanding and, and to help us. Because when, when John sees that vision in Revelation chapter 12, this is not just an image that, that comes from nowhere. It actually comes from here in, in Genesis 37. And so as we, as we read the scripture, we need to be filing different parts of it away in our minds so that as we read something else, we'll, we'll see that, oh yeah, this, this points back to what we've already seen at some other point in the scripture. But anyways, there's these dreams that 
Joseph has had, and we see the, the outcome of that in terms of Jacob's rebuke. We see the brothers, they hate him more, they're jealous of him. This is not going to go well. And, of course, trouble doesn't stop there. It gets worse. And so Jacob, we're told in verse 14, is dwelling in the valley of Hebron, and the older ten were out pasturing the flock at Shechem. This is a distance of maybe 50 miles away or so. And Jacob wants to know about the welfare of the flock, the welfare of his sons, and so he sends Joseph to find out about it. And Joseph answers in such a way that he was, he was ready to go. It's almost like, here I am, send me, kind of a thing. He's, he's ready to get up and go and do what his father has said. Now, evidently, even though surely Jacob and Joseph both knew that there was trouble on the table, they likely did not have any idea of the danger into which Joseph would be placed on this journey. Had Jacob known that the other ten were going to conspire and attempt to kill or at least sell Joseph into slavery, I'm sure that Jacob would not have sent Joseph on such a journey. But they didn't know really how bad it was. So Joseph goes the 50 miles or so to Shechem and can't find his brothers, but with a helpful tip, he goes on further to Dothan and finds him there. And then, while he's a distance out, his brothers see him coming, probably recognize the robe and so forth, and they begin to plot his downfall. And the original plan here is murder. They say, let us kill him and throw him into one of the, one of the pits. In other words, let's, let's get rid of our younger brother and we'll lie to dad about him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. He's, he's had these dreams, almost appears prophetic, that he's going to be the ruler. Well, we'll fix, we'll fix the prophecy in Joseph's dreams. But Reuben intervenes and sp- speaks up against the killing. He says, no, no, let's not do that. Let's not shed any blood. Let's just throw him into one of these pits here in the wilderness. That will be, that'll be enough. And of course, all the while, he's trying to plan in his mind how he's going to rescue Joseph and get him back to their father. Now, maybe Reuben is feeling the weight of responsibility as the firstborn. Maybe he's wanting to regain the good graces of his father after the incident with with Bilhah that we saw in chapter 35. It's hard to say, but at any rate, at the very least, he is certainly more upright than his other brothers at this moment. And to give credit where credit is due, his intervention, humanly speaking, is the thing that actually saves Joseph's life. Now, obviously the Lord was superintending all these events, but Reuben was the human agent that saved Joseph's life. Matthew Henry observed helpfully that God can raise up friends for his people even among their enemies. Reuben's temper seems to have been soft and effeminate, which, has be, which had betrayed him to the sin of uncleanness, while the temper of the next two brothers, Simeon and Levi, was fierce, which betrayed them to the sin of murder, a sin which Reuben startled at the thought of. Our natural constitution should be guarded against those sins to which it is most inclinable and improved, as Reuben's here, against those sins to which it is most averse. In other words, we all have sins towards which we are naturally inclined. Reuben went after his father's wife. Simeon and Levi went after the men of Shechem. It might have been Simeon and Levi who had first raised the idea here of, hey, let's, let's kill younger brother. They don't seem to have too much trouble shedding blood, and so they might have, they might have been the ones who had this idea. But we need to recognize those sins toward which we are most naturally inclined 
We have to be especially on guard against them. And on the flip side, we need to be intentional to take advantage of those areas where our consciences are more tender, as Reuben's did here. Reuben is more averse, apparently, to the sin of murder than his brothers were, and he brought that aversion to the table here in this case. He didn't simply sit back and let his murderous brothers run the show. He spoke up, and he turned the tide. And just as an observation, you never know when a solitary voice against evil might actually be enough to to turn the tide and and bring things to a different conclusion than they would have gone otherwise. In this case, with Reuben, it seems to have been his single voice, raising an objection, suggesting an alternative that saved Joseph's life. But even that turning of the tide, even with that, things still proved to go hard with Joseph. Joseph. When Joseph shows up, they stripped him of his robe, they threw him in the pit as they had planned, and then while Reuben is away, they see this caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. They have this cargo of aromatic gum and balm and myrrh that they're taking down to Egypt. And so just, uh, just think to Jeremiah 8.22, that's proverbial saying, is there no balm in Gilead? Well, yes, there was. And these Ishmaelites were taking that and some of the other products of, of Gilead in the area and were taking them down to Egypt to trade. Now, we need to notice that the members of this caravan are spoken of in different ways. In uh, verse 25, they're spoken of as Ishmaelites. In verse 28, they're spoken of as Midianites. And at least in the original, they're spoken of as Medanites in verse 36. Now, the progenitors of those people groups, Ishmael, Midian, and Medan, were all sons of Abraham. Ishmael, obviously, son of Hagar, and then Midian and Medan were the sons of Abraham by his wife Keturah, Genesis 25-2. Now, it's possible that this caravan was composed of members of all three uh, people groups. But we should also note that, that sometimes the, the nomenclature seems to be somewhat, somewhat fluid. And so if we jump ahead to the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 8, after Gideon defeated uh, the Midianites, we find that those Midianites are actually spoken of as Ishmaelites in Judges 8.24. Um, Gideon is uh, requesting that all of the Israelites bring him an earring from the spoil, and the writer of Judges says, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And so the defeated defeated Midianites are also referred to as as Ishmaelites. And so there's some fluidity in in terms of the way that these people are are designated. And perhaps this is due to to intermarriage or uh, making common cause together, working together, living close together, or or things of that nature. But anyways, they, they see these traitors bound for Egypt in the distance, and this gives Judah a bright idea. Hey, why not sell Joseph instead of killing him outright and leaving him to die in a pit? What, what profit is there in it for us if we leave Joseph here in a pit? We could, we could get some money out of this. And so they sell him for 20 pieces of silver, 20 shekels of silver. And Reuben obviously had not been present during this most recent development, and when he comes back and finds that Joseph's not there, he is surprised and says, the boy is not, as for me, where am I to go? His plans for restoring Joseph have been dashed to the ground, and so he's wondering, how, how can I stand before my father now? And so 
they agree together to deceive their father. They dip Joseph's robe in the goat blood, they take it to their father and ask him to take a look and see if it was Joseph's. And if we think here, the irony of the situation is that decades earlier, Jacob himself had used goats and garments to deceive his own father, Isaac. He had taken the meat of those goats, which Rebekah had prepared and served it to his father as if it were wild game. He had put the skins of goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And he had worn Esau's clothes, all to deceive his father. And now, Jacob's sons are kind of playing the same game. They're using goat's blood and a garment to deceive their father. There's some, there's some family history here that's kind of, kind of repeating itself again. And so Jacob examines the robe and comes to the conclusion that his other sons were hoping he would come to. That indeed Joseph had been killed by a wild beast, he thought. And so he mourned, refused to be comforted when his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him. The reference there in verse 35 to daughters in the plural could be that Jacob had other daughters in addition to Dinah, or it could be potentially used in reference to daughters-in-law. But Jacob refused any comfort that they offered. And so he says, For I shall go down to Sheol to my son in mourning. Now that word Sheol can be used in different ways, but here it seems to be used in reference to the place of the dead. Jacob says that he will go to his son in Sheol. Jacob believes that his son Joseph had already passed to the state of the dead in Sheol, and that whenever he himself was to go there, he would go there to his son, still mourning for him. The grief of this loss was, was crushing to him. His favorite son, out on an errand, gets killed by a wild beast. So he thinks. But meanwhile, Moses reminds us in verse 36 that Joseph was not in Sheol. He was in Egypt, having been sold by the Medianites to Potiphar. And so there's a lot here, and I think we might call it a perfect storm of family sins. As we have seen, it's, it's difficult to know for sure just how sinful Joseph may or may not have been in regard to maybe being prideful and telling about his dreams and so on. But let's just, let's just put Joseph and his potential sins aside for a moment and think about the other sinful things that are going on here. Right? The sons of Bilhah and Zilpah are apparently doing something wrong. Verse 2, Jacob is playing favorites and broadcasting that favoritism among his sons. His brothers hate him, can't speak peacefully to him. After Joseph shares the dreams, they become more hateful and more jealous. And this hatred and jealousy stirs up the brothers then to plot to murder him. Reuben gets the plan shifted to throw him into a pit. Judah has the bright idea to sell him into slavery while Reuben is gone. And then they collaborate together on a deceitful cover-up, and then they hypocritically comfort their father in his grief. Now, how's that for a perfect storm of family sins? How's that for a dysfunctional family? I don't know everyone's family history here. Maybe your family story is every bit as bad or worse. Or maybe you would say, yeah, my family was bad, but nothing, nothing at all quite as bad as that. But either way, whether you would say your family is nothing like that or you would say your family is similar or worse than that, either way, please understand that real sins, really serious sins, can 
and do happen in families. Real sins and really serious sins can and do happen in families where the leaders of those families are trying to follow the Lord, as was the case here with Jacob. God had made promises to Jacob. He had blessed Jacob. And Jacob, for his part, had promised to worship God back at Bethel, and he did worship God. But there were still problems here. There were a lot of problems, a lot of sins. And in thinking about this, we need to make sure that we don't fall off the wagon on either side. For one, we must not excuse the sins of Jacob and overlook them as if they were not real. They were very real. Jacob's favoritism and what appears to be a lack of godly leadership in his family were very real problems, and we can't make excuses for him. But on the other hand, we can't simply write him off as an ungodly man. We can't simply say that everything he said and did at Bethel was just talk, and that talk is cheap, and then write him off as a phony, a fraud, and someone who had uh, the appearance of godliness but denied its power. The scriptures won't let us do that. Right? The Lord God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. With all their sins, he was their God. With all their sins, they were his people. And I make a point of this because I fear that, that sometimes it is all too common for people who've been hurt by their families who are professing Christians or by a member of their family who is a professing Christian simply to, to write them off, either to say, that this person wasn't a real believer, or if he was, then I want no part of Christianity. If that's what Christianity is, count me out. Now, now please hear me loud and clear on this, and don't, don't misunderstand. Each case must be weighed. Each case must be weighed on its own merits. Now, maybe your family members who profess to be Christians and hurt you weren't real Christians. I don't know. That might be something to take into consideration and think about, depending on the circumstances. But just because you got hurt or just because there were some unhelpful things about your family's home as you were growing up, just because they sinned against you does not mean that you can simply write them off as unbelievers. Now, again, hear me out. I understand that there are times in a family's life when the police may need to be called, when charges may need to be filed and so on. The sins and patterns of sins may be so egregious that those who perpetuated them were clearly not Christians at all. I'm not arguing against those things. But what I am saying is that you can't write your family off just because it's not perfect. You can't write your family off just because there are sins in the family. Jacob was redeemed by the Lord, but his home and family life was an absolute mess. In seeing the sins in this chapter, we also see the fruits of sins. As such, there are, there are some warnings here for us. For one, we see the progression of sin in the brothers. What begins with hatred and harsh words and jealousy culminated in murderous desire. And then when when that went off the table, it culminated in man-stealing and in a lying cover-up of the actual events. It's not without cause that our Lord Jesus Christ says, as we read together this morning, You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. 
What Jesus does there is that he links together murder with anger and with those harsh words, you good for nothing, you fool. Now why does Jesus link these sins, anger, harsh words, with murder? He does so because the logical progression, once you start with hatred and angry words, is that things, things ramp up. Things get worse. The natural progression is for the temperature to increase and for the situation to deteriorate and for worse sins to come in its wake, namely culminating in murder. It's the same thing regarding the connection between lust and adultery. Adultery starts long before the act of adultery. Adultery starts with the lustful heart, with the lingering glances, and so on. Now, that's not to say that lust always culminates in adultery. It doesn't, and we should praise God for that. It's not to say that hatred always culminates in murder. It doesn't. And again, we should praise God for that, and we see that borne out here in the text. That's great that hatred doesn't always lead to murder. But nevertheless, what we do see in the text is that the natural, unchecked progression of sin is that it only gets worse, that hatred does lead to murder. If the brothers had not been contradicted by Reuben, most likely they would have murdered him or tried. This is because hatred is the root sin behind murder, and there's a progression here. And this is, this is the way that sin works. It gets worse and worse. And we also see here some patterns Specifically, repeated patterns that that take place in the life of this family. Having a favorite son and making it known, as he did, Jacob is somewhat similar to his father Isaac. Think back to Isaac. Isaac had two sons, and he had a favorite. That favorite was Esau. And as we considered back earlier in the book of, of Genesis, Isaac's favoritism toward Esau probably contributed to his desire to go ahead and seek to give the Abrahamic blessing to Esau, even though he probably knew that word from the Lord which had come to Rebekah when the twins were in her womb, that word which said, the older shall serve the younger. In other words, the blessing was not to go to Esau, the blessing was to be with Jacob. I think it's very likely that Isaac was familiar with that word, but because Esau was his favorite, he was stubbornly set on giving the blessing to Esau. And that then led to the sinful actions of Rebekah and Jacob to counteract that. They sought to deceive Isaac, and they did deceive him. You know the history of these things. And there is a repeat of some of that here in the next generation. Jacob, showing favoritism for Joseph, brings out the worst in the rest of his brothers. And as I pointed out, this ends with the sons deceiving their father using the brother's robe and goat blood, which makes us think back to the way in which Jacob deceived his own father using Esau's clothes and goat products. There's some similar, similar patterns going on here. Now there's that old saying uh, that history never repeats itself, but it often rhymes. It often rhymes. There, there are some patterns that, that play out. There's some, some cause and effect, and you can see how, how things move from one thing to another, on and on, bit by bit, down the line. Now, it doesn't always work out in exactly the same way, but, but nevertheless, there, there's some patterns there. And we see here in Genesis 37 this tendency, sometimes at least, for these patterns to manifest themselves in the life of a family. For good or for ill, our families are going to influence us 
an awful lot. The things that we receive in our families, both by spoken precept and instruction, and also by example, are often going to be very significant for us in the long run. That's not to say that uh, that there's anything deterministic in our upbringing or to say that we cannot escape repeating the sins of our forefathers. I don't say anything of the kind. But what I am saying is that the home is a formative context, formative environment, and what we imbibe, both in terms of instruction and in terms of example, can have lasting impacts and effects upon us. And even in cases where children make a definite break with sins that have been committed in their family, even still, the family is the theater in which the effects of sin often play themselves out. The, in other words, the effect of a father's sin may be evident in the life of the child. That child may carry it on into his marriage, and then the repercussions upon that marriage then may have effects upon the children who were born to them, and, and on and on it can go. So there are sinful progressions and sinful patterns that happen. And the sins that we see or experience at the hands of others then can very easily set us up on sinful courses of our own. And then, of course, sin leads to more sin. The hatred we harbor might not simply remain as hatred. If it becomes unhindered, it can become unhinged. Our angry words and jealousy might not simply remain as angry words and jealousy. In other words, in short, sin is entangling and ensnaring. Those who sin are enslaved to sin, as we heard earlier this morning from John chapter 8, John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. That was a problem here in Genesis 37, wasn't it? That these brothers were enslaved to sin, and what do you know? They lived like they were enslaved to sin. And that's the problem with the world that we live in as well. We live in a world in which men and women, boys and girls, are enslaved to sin. doesn't mean that everybody's as bad as they can be. Praise God for that. But nevertheless, the enslavement to sin is real, and people act in accordance with the fact that they are slaves to sin. So this should serve as a warning to us of the destructive and soul-ruining power of sin. But the problem is, is that left to ourselves, we can't do anything to escape from that enslavement. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ can set you free. This is exactly what he says in John eight thirty six. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And this is why Jesus came into the world. The Son of God came to save sinners. And he did this by living a sinless life, by dying on the cross, and in doing so, suffering the punishment that you and I deserved because of our sins. And Jesus did this so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that we could be made new. And therefore, when someone becomes a Christian, that is, when someone trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin and receives eternal life, They become a new creature. They pass from death into life. And their heart of stone that was enslaved to sin is taken away from them. They are given a heart of flesh 
Or to put it in other biblical terminology, their hearts become circumcised. And Lord willing, we'll speak more about this issue this evening from Colossians chapter 2, 11 and 12. The, the circumcision of the heart, the circumcision which Christ brings to his people when he saves them. And so what this warning from Genesis 37 should do is cause us to see the deadly poison of sin and the deadly power of sin. We should see how it ruins families, ruins relationships, and ruins lives. And we should see our own helplessness in standing against sin. And that should lead us to Christ, who has conquered sin and conquered Satan and has conquered death by his death on the cross. Seeing the destructive power of sin should lead us to repent and believe. And if you have more questions about what it means to trust in Jesus, receive the forgiveness of sins, you can talk to me after the service or you can talk to another Christian. We would love to tell you more about how you can be set free from the enslaving power of sin. And so we see plenty of sin and plenty of the fruits of sin here. And though the name of God is not mentioned in Genesis chapter 37, we can see that the Lord is working out his plan even by means of these sinful men and these terrible events. And Lord willing, we'll speak more of God's providence in these things as we continue uh, working through the, the text concerning Joseph here in the book of Genesis. But there is more going on here in Genesis 37 that we should see. We should take special note here of how our Lord Jesus Christ is prefigured by the person of Joseph and how many of the events of Christ's life are typified by the events of chapter 37. Now, Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7 as he's speaking to the Sanhedrin demonstrates to us that Joseph is a type or a forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you, if you read through Acts 7 and you follow the logic of Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin, you'll see that, that he lifts up two Israelite examples. He lifts up Joseph and he lifts up Moses as forerunners of Christ. And the basic idea is that these men were deliverers of the nation of Israel who were rejected by the nation of Israel. And Stephen ended that speech, as you may recall, Acts 7, 51 to 53, and he says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always rejecting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. In other words, Stephen's reasoning there is that the Sanhedrin of his day was doing what the nation of Israel had done when they rejected the leadership of Moses and also what the patriarchs had done when they rejected the leadership of Joseph and they became jealous of him and sold him into slavery. And so the New Testament shows us that there's, there's some connection between, between Joseph and Christ. There's a, a way in which Joseph foreshadows Jesus. And let's, let's think about some of those things from this chapter here in chapter 37. We're told here that Joseph was the son of his father's old age, the son whom Jacob loved more than all his other sons. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal son. He's always been the son of God the Father, but he is the eternal son of the ancient of days. And he is his only begotten son, 
in whom he is well pleased. Just think to the, the baptism of Christ where, where God the Father spoke and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, obviously, in Jacob, there was sinful partiality going on, but there was certainly no partiality in the love which God the Father had for his only begotten Son. There's no partiality, but rather this is the love that exists among the persons of the Holy Trinity. Joseph here was hated by his brothers. So was Jesus. Our Lord Jesus was hated by many of his brothers within the nation of Israel who met him, saw his miracles, and interacted with him. With him. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we see that hatred on the part of the Pharisees as they go out and begin conspiring with the Herodians of how they might destroy Jesus. There were plots against Joseph here in Genesis 37. There were plenty of plots against our Lord Jesus Christ as well. Joseph's brothers here questioned whether he would be the one who would rule over them. In the early verses of John chapter 7, we see Jesus interacting with his brothers. And we're told in John 7, verse 5, that not even his brothers were believing in him. Jesus' brothers didn't think that he would be great. They didn't think that he would rule, just like it was with Joseph and his brothers. Joseph was sent here by his father to his brothers according to the flesh. Our Lord Jesus was sent by God the Father to his brothers according to the flesh. Brothers who would reject him. Just think of John chapter 1. He came to those who were his own, and his own did not receive him. And Joseph's brothers plotted his death. And so it was with our Lord. We read in John eleven fifty three that the chief priests and Pharisees planned together to kill him. Matthew tells us, Matthew 26, 3 and 4, Then the chief priests and elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. We also see here in the text that Joseph was sold for silver. 20 shekels, 20 pieces. So was Jesus. Jesus sold for 30 pieces. A man named Judah was the one who had the idea of selling Joseph. A man named Judas was the one who sold our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Now these names, Judah and Judas, show up differently in our English Bibles, but they are really, in fact, the same name. Both Joseph and Jesus were betrayed and sold at the instigation of a Judas. Joseph was delivered over to foreigners, the Ishmaelites, Midianites. Our Lord Jesus was delivered over to foreigners as well, as he himself foretold, Mark 10, 33, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And indeed, it did happen, just as he said it would. In so many ways, this young man, Joseph, points us forward to Christ. In so many ways, his life foreshadows that of the Messiah, By Joseph's life and the circumstances of it, God was giving us a picture of some of what his Christ would be like. And so we must let these shadows of the Old Testament history point us ahead to Jesus who fulfills all the good that is foreshadowed in the life of Joseph. Just as Joseph redeemed his his brothers, physically speaking, so also our Lord Jesus Christ gives us the redemption of from sin. And we've been warned, haven't we, of 
the sins from which we need to plea, these enslaving sins. We've been shown that we need to be brought true freedom. And it is in Christ, in the Son of God, where freedom is to be found. And so we should allow Genesis 37 to point us to the Son of God who came to conquer sin and to destroy the works of the devil. And let's praise God that indeed he did those things. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for both the warning against sin, this hurricane of sins that we see here in the life of Jacob's family. We pray that we would take warning and that we would flee to Christ for forgiveness, for new life, for strength, that we may resist temptation and walk in holiness. And Father, we also thank you for the ways in which Joseph points us ahead to Jesus. We see so much here about his life that is a, is a shadow of the greater one to come. And Father, we, we praise you for Christ and his coming, his great humility in coming to us, suffering for us, so that we may have life in his name. We give thanks and we give praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.